What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to a special episode of the Mets Up Podcast. We told you earlier in the week we're going to have a special guest on. We've got Tim Healy, boots on the ground, import St. Lucie. We're going to go over all things spring training. We've got a lot of questions for him. Again, boots on the ground, bees on the G. We, uh, we got to know what's going on down there in PSL. Tim, thank you for coming on. Uh, first time appearance on the Mets Up Podcast. What's yes. going on? Thank you for having me. What's going on is a great question. It's uh, it's week three out of six of spring training, so uh, not a whole lot is going on. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely going to ask you from like some PSL uh, what to do tips at the end. But just being there for this first week, games got started up last weekend. The Mets are actually undefeated right now in spring Can't training. Great, grapefruit League play, un- unstoppable. What's the general vibe, the general tenor around the team right now? Coming off the disappointing season, coming off the kind of wonky offseason, just what's the feel? It's been way different in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. There's less buzz, but it's also a looser, more chill clubhouse. And there's a lot that goes into that. Different leadership, right? No Buck Showalter, no Billy Epler. Now there's Carlos Mendoza and David Stearns. There are fewer stars on the roster in in the clubhouse. So the locker that had been occupied, for example, by... Justin Verlander last year and Jacob deGrom in the years before that now belongs to Luis Severino, who is, I suppose, I suppose the biggest name pitcher they added over the offseason, but doesn't quite stack up with the others. Um, and it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's really relaxed. There are some good prospects in camp, um, but it, it, it sounds, it feels like a good situation for this particular version of the Mets because they're sort of in a mode where, okay, the expectations externally are lower. Maybe they're loose. Maybe they're, maybe they'll surprise some people. So that's sort of where camp is at right now. Now you mentioned them feeling loose. You mentioned the difference in leadership right now. Is that something that is like indicative of the the vibe that Carlos Mendoza has been giving that he's just a little bit more relaxed, a little bit of a younger guy as well. Um, is that what he's seeming to aim for as the vibe or that's just something that's naturally happened? I think it's just it's just something that naturally has happened. Uh, like I said, with fewer, there are no no doubt Hall of Famers in the room, right? Lindor's on a track. You can make some case for some guys, but there's no Scherzer. There's no Verlander. I think guys are a lot freer to be themselves. I think the switch from Buck Showalter, who was old, who had been managing longer than a lot of those Mets had been alive. <laughs> to a bilingual first-timer rookie from the Yankees less, but he's not really stuffy like you think the Yankees are. Um, it's a huge change. It's a big change. Um, and that's not to say one option or the other is more correct, but the difference is definitely noticeable. Getting to know Mendoza a little bit over these last few weeks, what's like a moment or maybe a little story or like a drill or just something you mentioned just being around that could kind of give Mets fans like a better a better uh, insight to who he is as a manager, baseball guy? I think it's been really interesting to watch him talk shop in the field with the infielders. He came up after he was after he retired as a player in a minor league career that really didn't go anywhere. He transitioned into coaching and got into the infield side of it. He was a pretty good infielder, solid infielder as a player. And so that was just a natural fit. Came up that way through the Yankees farm system, got onto their major league staff initially as the infield coach. And it's been interesting to see him retain some of that role. Uh, he's been talking with Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos a bunch. He's talked with Pete Alonzo. 
the first day Alonzo was in camp, the pitchers and catchers had already been around for a few days. Alonzo showed up, and it was kind of funny to see Mendoza give Alonzo a little extra attention that he really hadn't given the other early reporting infielders. Just getting a sense on how he plays for space, what Mendoza thinks, you know, how he goes about those sorts of things, throwing, backing away from the base, whatever. So some of the finer technical points, um, you know, given the superstar first baseman uh, a little extra love and attention on his first day was striking. But he's also talked with Lindor, who obviously doesn't exactly need tips on how to play shortstop. Um, but it, it, And it's interesting because when coaches become managers, they don't always stick with their coaching specialty, right? I, I covered Don Mattingly on the Marlins, and he was before that a hitting coach and before that an excellent, excellent first baseman. And he did not really take a hands-on approach with either of those things when he was with the Marlins. So uh, it's been interesting to see Mendoza keep that aspect of his uh, daily routine, really, uh, as manager. Yeah, I mean, and you talked about the fact that like sometimes the managers were switching roles. Their, their feel changes a little bit here. What has the feel been like having a couple of those coaches from the old coaching staff still sticking around with Carlos Mendoza and all the new guys with Eric Chavez and Jeremy Hefner. It has seemed really seamless. When change was happening at the end of last season and you figured Buck was a toss-up and then he was gone, and then the coaching staff was up in the air, if the Mets were going to keep anybody, it was probably going to be Hefner and it was probably going to be the hitting coaches. Chavez or you know, he was the bench coach, but now is the hitting coach, Eric Chavez and Jeremy Barnes. They kept a couple of others, right? Danny Barnes and Glenn Sherlock, some of their strategy coaches. Sherlock still works with the catchers too, but really it was the hitting coach and pitching coaches, pitching coach and hitting coaches, excuse me, um, who would be the ones to keep. And, and it seems, like I said, pretty seamless. You wouldn't really know that there was a managerial change based on the way those guys have gone about their jobs. Which makes sense because to a certain degree, they are pretty autonomous. A lot of the pitching stuff just runs through Hefner and Mendoza isn't really involved in that decision making, at least at this point when they're all just working out and building up and whatnot. So Hefner's in charge of the pitching department, so to speak, and uh, he was last year and he is this year still. The Chavez situation is like kind of gotten weirder and weirder as the days have gone on. We heard Gary Keith and Ron mention the first game, but like he's back where he belongs. We heard him say, quote, that he was apologizing to people and was sorry about how last year went. And even just the concept of being a hitting coach to a bench coach and back to a hitting coach. I can't remember yep. any other coach in the league who's done that. So is there is there kind of like a relief, a refreshment around Chavez now switching back in roles and where what 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 kind of pushed him out of the bench coach role or even maybe into the bench coach role last year, if you have any knowledge on that. I'm glad you asked because I wrote about this a few days ago for Newsday and I talked to Chavez about it. And as you mentioned, yeah, he was the bench coach last year and was never really comfortable in that role. And that happened initially, that promotion from hitting coach to bench coach happened because the Mets wanted to keep Jeremy Barnes. Yeah, He was their assistant hitting coach. A te teams came to the Mets and said, hey, can we talk to Jeremy Barnes? And instead of saying yes, the Mets promoted Jeremy Barnes to lead hitting coach, which means Eric Chavez needed another job, which means he became bench coach. And he's a guy who's pretty highly regarded in baseball. He wants to be a manager. So at the time, 
bench coach seemed like, yeah, sure, that seems like a natural next step for Eric Chavez. And then he did that job for a year and never really felt comfortable in it. He felt disconnected from the players, to use his own word, disconnected. And to explain the apologizing bit, it was at the end of last year, he approached players in sort of those quiet moments as they played out the string and basically said, I'm sorry, my bad. I felt like I should have been there more for you guys. And they, of course, said, you were here for us. Um, But I think it speaks to how, what an unexpected switch that was. I thought that when they promoted Chavez, promoted Barnes, all the hitting stuff would pretty much stay the same. But Chavez said he really went out of his way to not be in the, in the, day-to-day grind with the hitters because he didn't want to step on the toes of the actual hitting coaches. Now, now when Stearns came over, he's told Chavez straight up, I want to keep you. I will leave that decision up to the manager. And then Mendoza got hired and they kept Barnes. But it sounds like Chavez was down for whatever. Hitting coach, sure. Bench coach, sure. If they wanted to interview him for manager, of course he would interview. If If Stearns wanted Chavez to go to the front office, which Chavez has done in the past with the Yankees, um, he would have done that too. So he's just a good baseball guy to have around. And I think that hitting coach role, as Gary said on the SNY broadcast, is just sort of the natural fit for it right now. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, he was a great player, like you said, like even with the A's, the six, six goal gloves in a row. He yeah. was. He was unbelievable. So there's also been another player, and I know you wrote about this as well, that's been hanging around spring training a little bit more on the field and saw him in the dugout as well for some of these games. Carlos Beltran. We know that he kind of had this role-ish last year. He was like the special advisor to Billy Epler. Yeah. But it seemed like the involvement was kind of more behind the scenes where now he's really more hands-on. So how exactly do you think that happened? That's a great question. So I'm sure people remember that it was around this time last year that Beltran getting hired by the Mets was a pretty big deal. He had been Mets manager for a hot second, never managed the game, and then was like unofficially banished basically from baseball for a couple of years, aside from a little broadcasting stuff. So when the Mets brought him back into the fold, it was it was a big deal. The former manager, technically, the former all-star center fielder, one of the probably the best free agent signing in the history of the Mets. Um, yeah. And the the line, the company line from the Mets at the time was He's going to be hands-on with the player development and go visit the minor league teams. And he's so wise. He knows so much stuff. He's going to be able to share that with young players. And I'm not sure how much of that actually happened for reasons that I don't, I can't speak to. I don't, I don't know how much he did or didn't do. It sounds like this year though, they want Beltran to be more involved specifically on the major league side. So he might still do some minor league visits, but David Stern's, said to Beltran, I want you with the major league team on the road. And I'm not sure how frequent that will be, but it sounds like it'll be a pretty common thing. Uh, So David Stearns is thinking and Beltran's thinking is, let me back up. David Stearns is thinking is here's Carlos Beltran should be a hall of famer, baseball genius by all accounts. Let's have him around the team. It could only be a good thing. Beltran's thinking is, you know, he he's a member of the front office, right? He's not a coach. He's not the manager. He is a special assistant to the president of baseball operations. And these days, there are not a lot of front office guys, including 
in the Mets front office who played baseball, period, never mind played it for as long and as successfully as he did. So Beltran views himself as somebody who could be a really really helpful go-between between the players and the front office, which, like Stearns says, you know, or as Stearns thinks, can only be a good thing. So the special assistant, the special advisor title is a little nebulous. It's There are about as many job descriptions as there are people who hold that title. Um, but for Beltran this year, it's going to be being around the Mets. And as we've seen the last few days, in the dugout during spring training, which is pretty cool. Really cool. And I think that we, it's interesting. We went through the Mets team directory for an episode we did a few days ago. And Carlos Beltran is the second person listed under the Mets front office directly after David Stearns, which I think is very interesting. The fact that he was, again, like hired almost in, not hired in silence, hired with fanfare, and then now pushed onto the major league team kind of in silence. And now he seems like he's going to be this auxiliary member of the front office, like liaison to the team and the manager. Do you think... You said mentioned that this was like basically a Stern's decision. Do you think there's yeah. any relation in this decision to the fact that there is a first-time big league manager here compared to someone who had basically 30 years of experience in the big league dugouts last year in Buckshaw Walter? I don't think so because I don't think Stern's views the Beltron thing as um, you know helping Mendoza specifically because – Really, what does Carlos Beltran know about managing? That's true. <laughs> <Good point. laughs> nothing. Nothing. He, he knows about he knows about hitting. He knows about life in the majors. He knows about what it's like to win, what it's like to lose, uh, what it's like to be in the day to day trenches. Um, so I think there's a lot of wisdom that can be dispensed. And the way Beltran put it, and I forgot to include this quote in my story, which I was kicking myself for after, was that. <laughs> Beltron's job, according to Beltron, is to have baseball conversations with whoever wants to engage him. So, same. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Lindor and veteran players, young players like Alvarez and Beatty and Vientos, coaches. If Mendoza wants to engage, sure. Yeah, of course. They know each other. They do know each other from the Yankees days. So they have something of a foundational relationship. Um, so Beltron's just going to be around. And I think it's sort of free form. They'll, they'll see where it takes them. Yeah, I mean, the vibe definitely feels, like you said, a little bit different, even from us watching at home. Like yeah. we saw today, Antoine Richardson doing that drill with the outfielders where they're dropping the ball in the like pitching yeah. machine, shooting up and catching it. And I don't really know what the actual like necessity is to do that drill, what it actually helps with, but it just felt loose. It felt like the yes. guys were like, like laughing and having a good time, which is something that I feel like we did. We saw a lot in 2022, didn't see a lot in 2023. Yeah, that's a great point those guys were having a good time with that drill and yes they some of them dropped balls but they were they were loose and having fun and let's be honest they're all major league outfielders so i don't know how much skill development you really need at this at this point but um you know they, they were having a good time and i think there is some value to that on february 28th when uh you're in the dog days of spring training a little bit as i as i call it it seems like a, it, it there's a good vibe Seems like another part of this vibe, especially compared to last year being one of the oldest teams in baseball, is all the prospects in camp right now and all the excitement after the trades from last year and even just the draft with Jet Williams, Luis Angel Acuna, Drew Gilbert getting in these games, getting reps, like running, hitting, fielding. There's a there's a youthful element. What's what's the buzz around them for people in Port St. Lucie and just where where do you think those guys are in terms of major league readiness or how soon they could possibly contribute? It's fun because every spring there are a couple of prospects, but I, I want to say this is the biggest group or the best group in my 
now seven spring trainings on the beat, right? Pete Alonso was a big prospect in 2019. Alvarez had his springs. Beatty was around. Um, but to have the position player trio of Jet Williams, Luis Angel Acuna, and Drew Gilbert in the upper minors, and then the starting pitcher trio of Christian Scott, Mike Vassell, and Dominic Hamill in the upper minors, any and all of whom could feasibly reach the majors this year is a level that the Mets farm system has not been at in a while to have that many legit prospects eking closer to the majors when they'll get there. It's, it's a little different. Uh, Gilbert and Acuna are a little ahead of jet Williams, just in terms of timing and where they finished 2023 Williams. I have to assume will open in Binghamton, um, and then on the pitch on the pitching side, Vassal was in AAA last year, so he could be called up any given time. The Mets need a starter if they want to go that route. And there are other considerations: forty-man roster, service time stuff, who's pitching well when. Um, but then Christian Scott also is going to be starting in AAA, and Dominic Hamill probably will be too. So there's going to be a lot of names. Syracuse is going to be a fun time this year definitely going to try to make our way up to uh the, the great north uh new york upstate new york and yeah, see some same. games in Binghamton and syracuse at some point to watch yeah. those guys is there anybody outside of those big prospects that has been making a name for themselves right now in camp that maybe we're not hearing that much about uh nate lavender it depends on how much uh, it depends on your level of fandom i guess if you know anything about nate lavender but he's a he's a lefty he throws in the low 90s and he strikes out a ton of dudes somehow uh he, I, I classify him as this year's Grant Hartwig or this year's Colin Holderman, where in sprint, he's in big league camp. He's not on the 40 man, but he is a little bit of a relief prospect for as much as a reliever can be a prospect, right? It's a lower bar or a different, a different threshold. Um, and he won't make the team out of camp, but he's going to get a shot. If he goes to Syracuse and pitches like he was pitching last year, He's going to get a chance, just like we saw with Hartwig in like June last year and Holderman and I think the June the year before and Holderman did really well and like traded. Hartwig was up and down. I, I like his ceiling. I think he could be a good bullpen piece. But Lavender's in that bucket for me this year. Um, super interesting. And it seems like a really fun, loving, easygoing guy. Um, so he's probably the under the radar, quote unquote, prospect uh, who's, you know, been opening some eyes. Yeah, he, he dropped that quote after his first appearance where if like you're going to throw 91, 92 and you're not going to believe in it, you're probably going to get hit hard. But if you're going to throw with some grit and determination, you're going to get the guy out, which is like, fuck yeah, I want to hear that. And it does feel like he is that. I also kind of put him with Paul Gervais right now. I know he's a yeah. step behind Lavender, but it's just like, so weird lefty. It doesn't really look super normal, but yeah. some some way, somehow, it's very, very effective. Another guy who has been turning head spring training, but like you've already mentioned, Francisco Alvarez. It just seems like a lot of things are clicking at once, like the talent, the English, the defense, the offense, the yep. leadership. Everything sounds, kind of seems to be going in the right direction for Francisco Alvarez. Give give Mets fans a pitch right now about why the, the, the big breakout, the step is about to happen. And then one reason why maybe it doesn't if you see something else that we're not seeing. Uh, I do think it's going to be a big season and a big step forward for Francisco Alvarez. And because last year... He was 21 years old and got called up probably half a season or a full season earlier than the Mets really wanted or expected. And then he took over the starting catcher job 
and he had a league average OPS and hit 25 home runs or whatever it was. And that for a 21-year-old who's catching and therefore not playing every every day, that's just it's 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 ridiculous stuff. And when you think about I was th- I was thinking about this in the context of a you know, if they sign him to a contract extension or if they didn't, he would be a free agent at like 26 or something, which is ridiculous for a catcher. Um, the sky is the ceiling, which is a, a cliche that probably gets thrown around too much. But for Francisco Alvarez, potential franchise corner, cornerstone, it, it, it's it's more true than usual when people say that. So uh, I've all, all aboard the Francisco Alvarez train, which I'm sure is already very crowded. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of great things too about just like how he carries himself. Like yeah. he, there's a, there's a lot of pride in what he does. He works really hard. Do you see him like I guess it's weird cuz he is so young, but it feels like he's a guy who wants to be a leader eventually for this team at some point. Do you see him kind of making those little strides yet? It might be a little too early for that cuz he's still so so young. I think that comes naturally to catchers just by virtue of their position on the field. But I will say regarding the way that he carries himself, he is, he's so, so, so confident, but really not cocky, which is such a hard line to straddle. Uh, the first time I talked to Francisco Alvarez was in February of 2022 during the lockout. So the Mets had a prospect mini camp and a few of us reporters came down to cover it because it was spring training time and there was no spring training to cover. So yeah, let's go down to Florida for a few days and the Mets will make these guys available for interviews, blah, blah, blah. And me and a couple of the, couple of the other beat writers were just standing around waiting for guys to filter in. The job involves a lot of standing around and waiting for stuff to happen. And Alvarez shows up and it's his first day. And you know, he doesn't know any of us. He's like 19 or 20 years old at the time, uh, but recognizes us, existing as reporters uh drops off his bag and then comes out of the minor league clubhouse with another spanish speaker and and the mets plan for that prospect camp was for alvarez to do an interview at some time in the next few days when their interpreter arrived in port st Lucie. but alvarez nobody even asked we didn't ask him the mets didn't ask him he just walks out of the clubhouse with somebody else who speaks spanish and english and could interpret for him and shakes all of our hands and says Alvarez, 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 Alvarez. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this guy's deal? He, does he think he's the greatest thing ever? And 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 no, like I, he's not. He's not. Um, you know, sometimes big leaguers or, or prospects, these hot shots are just full of themselves, right? And Alvarez is confident, but like I said, not not cocky. And it was just a very genuine. I'm just going to go get an interpreter and do this interview right now. And nobody's going to ask. <laughs> and then his, and then we asked him that day, February, 2022, what is your goal for this season? And he said, he wants to make it to the majors. And I'm like, that's a great goal. Of course, he's going to say that, but that's not going to happen. Cause he's uh, 20 years old and hasn't played above single A yet. And then he did it that year. Yep. So I learned early to stop doubting francisco alvarez and even if he like strikes out too much like he did last year i'm i i will i will give him the benefit of the doubt that he will figure it out i mean he does only have the words the best tattooed on his neck so again, <laughs> it's, it's definitely very quiet confidence like you're saying i remember yeah, we yeah. 
the year before that, when he was still in Brooklyn, actually interviewed him. We had just had a connection with the Cyclones. They're like, you guys can talk to Francisco Alvarez. We were like, yes, we're going to go talk to Francisco Alvarez. And yeah. similarly, we didn't have we didn't have any translation help. I don't think the Cyclones had one on staff either. So we convinced one of our buddies, Ted, who also happens to be Venezuelan, so the dialects matched, to okay. take a sick day and come with us to Brooklyn and translate for Francisco Alvarez for us. And while we were setting up, and we didn't even know because we were like so focused on our equipment and whatnot, he comes up behind us. Mark has a little microphone in his hand, and he goes, hello, 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 hello. And we're like, who was that? We're like, oh, my, that's Francisco Alvarez. And he's just like, yeah. he came up to us. I think he hits him on the ear. Like, he was just ready to have fun. I don't think he even knew we were talking to him or who right. the hell we are. He definitely never would have. But it's just there's this, there's this vibe and this attitude to him that I don't think that many players his age even have yeah. ever. He's, he's a fun-loving guy, and he's not afraid of the spotlight. There's been a, a little bit of talk of contract extensions uh, at spring training this year. Pete Alonso, there was the Francisco Alvarez rumor. I want to talk about Alvarez first for Pete. When a rumor like that comes out, and obviously nothing has come to fruition, is, is it do the players have like kind of know that that rumor's out? Was there a feel around camp of like, is Alvarez going to get extended? Were people worried about it? Or was it just like, if it happens, we'll all know? That was a weird one because, you know, that rumor, that tweet comes out. And of course, I ask around and and people on both sides, Alvarez's side and the Mets side, were see, flabbergasted that that was out there. And, you know, people lie to me in this job all the time. It's the nature of it. But, but I actually believe them this time that it's not really a thing right now. And what I gathered then was that the sides expressed an intention to broach the subject eventually, whether that's during camp or next off season or next spring training, which makes sense, right? Cause he's a good young player. You're going to at least talk about it. Uh, so I, that was a weird one. Cause I, I really, really don't think there's anything solid or serious as far as a, an Alvarez extension goes. Um, not yet anyway. Uh, so that was that, that was a weird one. I really don't think it was that buzzy of a thing in the clubhouse, at least. We we are doing Mets content and it's before the season. So we're required by law to ask you about yes. Pete Alonso contract situation. Yes. yes. But we're not, we're not going to ask you the normal questions because we can imagine like the frustration on your guys end asking the same question every single day and never getting an answer, whether it be sure. Stearns, Alonzo, Boris, Mendoza, even just other reporters. Is there yeah. is there a level of almost like annoyance and frustration on your part that it's kind of like, it is part of your job. You have to ask this question, I guess, to a degree. But is there ever like like just a head banging against the wall moment? Not really. It's I I got a sense early last off season that it wasn't going to happen. This thing is going to free agency, and even going back years, it felt like Pete was going to free agency. So I was never really it was never really a high stress thing. I have to stay on top of this. I have to keep asking. I have to stay plugged in on it because I there was not going to be a resolution and there's not going to be until next off season sometime. That's my full expectation. And has been, um, there, there is a little bit of, uh, it does grow a little tiresome from the perspective of I'm a reporter. I report the news of the day. And whenever anybody involved in such a negotiation, or in this case, non-negotiation says anything about it, that's the news of the day. And, According to my editors, who are great, I need to write that story every time. So I wrote it like the week before spring training when Stearns went on foul territory, free agency is most likely outcome, or that's where it's headed, or whatever version of it he said. And then Stearns spoke the first day 
of camp. And then Alonzo spoke when he showed up. And then Steve Cohen said that thing. And it's like, okay, I've written this like four times already. And I'll probably do it another time or two before the end of spring training. Um, so it, it, it does get a little boring. Um, and it probably does for fans too, because then there are another round of stories that don't really say anything new, except somebody involved said something maybe a little different about it this time. And what was the case is still the case. And that's a little bit of an update, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we, we feel the same way. We're like, we hate talking about the Pete Alonzo contract. Yeah. We've had like the conversation enough where we're like, you guys know the drill. He's either going to take it or he's not probably yeah. not going to hit free agency. Let's move on. One thing that, like, legit, though, we don't really have that much information on is the whole Kodai Senga injury. We know that he's going to be yeah. shut down for a while. He's probably going to be out until mid-May, the earliest, if everything goes right. What was the reaction from the team and the players when Senga, you know, was officially shut down? I think, I mean, it's a big blow, right? It's Senga is the no-doubt best pitcher in the rotation on the team, the presumed opening day starter. And now without them, without Senga, it's kind of like, all right, I guess Jose Quintana will start opening day. I guess he's the last man standing from last year. Um, there weren't any big additions. Um, so sometimes there's a, uh, you know, there's a, ah, uh, we got to, there's two, there's two approaches the team can take, right? One is we have to step up collectively as a group or, or the opposite, back up. Don't do or say anything. Just continue to be yourself. And I think in this case for the Mets, it has to be the latter. Because none of these guys, Severino, Manaya, Hauser, Kentan, none of these guys are aces. None of them can force it or pretend it or even have that potential to get to. I think a best case scenario for Severino is still something, is still something less than being an ace, having an ace-like season. Um, and then you get to the to the level of the depth chart. That's McGill, Lucchese, Buto. One of these guys is going to open the year in the rotation. Okay, another another round for Tyler McGill. You know, I I as I, I wrote recently the, the way I phrased it was uh the Mets are chasing that April 2022 high when McGill was the best freaking thing going and had like a 1.5 ERA and five starts in April. And he looked legit, and then he hurt his shoulder. And, he, and, it, and so it's like part of parts of three seasons in the majors now for McGill, and his ERA is in the high fours. So maybe he'll put it together this time. Um, but also, the track record so far is what it is. Is there anyone of that group, Miguel, Lucchese, Budo? You think even early on, it's been very early. I think one appearance each, and they all actually look good in their appearances. Has something of an upper hand for the fifth rotation spot? Is it kind of from our perspective? Feels like. That spot in the rotation in general is going to be more fluid than years past. But is there going to be like, if it's one of those three guys, like a traditional fifth star they're coming out of camp? I, I think I, I consider McGill the guy right now. That, of course, is subject to change. I don't know how much in-game results really would influence the Mets at this point because they want McGill to happen. Yeah. Um, so it, it really just feels like he's going to get another chance. What becomes interesting to me is if another starter goes down or if and when they want to mix in that sixth starter. Like in April, they play 13 days in a row. They'll probably mix somebody in, give everybody an extra day of rest. Is it Lucchese? Is it Budo? They probably at that point don't go to any of the Scott Vassell tier. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, 
we're getting to the deep cuts now on the depth chart. Um, so it's interesting to me, not probably not so interesting to the masses, but uh, you know, that's where things stand with the rotation depth. Yeah. And deep cuts. Also, we're talking about pitching depth, probably something that not many people care about, but I know we definitely do the bullpen. Everyone loves the bullpen. Yeah. So many new relievers in this bullpen this year. A lot. Anyone standing out so far, anyone, the team is extra high on maybe more. So and anyone that, again, you mentioned Nate Lavender, but anyone with like some kind of like secret buzz that could make an impact. I think the Mets are tantalized by Jorge Lopez because this is a guy who for that one year pretty much was electric and was as good as it gets. And before that, and since then, he's been not good. He was on a bunch of teams last year and not good for any of them. Actually got worse when he kept changing teams. Um, but, <laughs> but if they can harness that again and get him back to there, he throws hard, good movement tall guy like you you like the look of it if he can emerge or re-emerge as a legitimate late inning guy and you add him to diaz adivino rayleigh then you then you're cooking in the late innings um but there are a lot of guys who fall into that category if the mets are going to be good this year they need a couple of pleasant surprises and the david stern's brewers teams were excellent excellent at finding or grabbing random relievers and making them useful. And I think actually the post-Sterns Brewers just did that with Trevor McGill, Tyler's yeah, brother, awesome. who's probably going to you know, be there, who's going to so have good. a huge year probably. Um, so that's basically what the Mets are doing now. They have, say, a dozen guys who historically have not been very good. They have one or two interesting characteristics or pitches. And if one or two of those guys work out out of a dozen, that's a win. How about uh, how about the guy at the end of the games? How's Edwin Diaz looking back on the mound? Uh, healthy? How's he, how's he doing? He's looking good. He actually had a big day the other day because he fielded bunts and covered first Ooh. base for the first time since blowing out his knee. So that, again, is a boring spring training thing. But in the context of him and his injury is huge because they can't put him in a game and they did not put him in a game last September because they could not be sure he could field his position. Now they're a little more sure. He's got some other steps. He's going to pitch in a minor league game on the backfields, but he'll probably be in a grapefruit game in the next week, week and a half, I would think. That's incredible. I think the Mets are approaching 500 days since 100 mile an hour pitch was thrown at any at any level, anyone in the organization. So it's going to be wow. really cool. Maybe next week to see Edmund Diaz do that finally. But yeah. some other silly spring training stuff. I think we're off the field stuff now. But we were there last year, Point St. Lucie, for I think it was three very long days. And that place is desolate. What <laughs> in the world do you do with yourself for six weeks at Point St. Lucie every single year? So that's a great question. And as somebody who is on a baseball schedule, which means staying up late after night games and then not waking up early because I don't have kids, um, it's definitely a transition to a spring training schedule when I have to be at work by 8 a.m. In the off season, I am not awake for hours after I'm supposed to be at work now. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a transition, which means, yes, going to bed uh, earlier. Um, so unfortunately, I'm, I'm beginning to answer your question of what to do in Port St. Lucie with going to bed early, which nice. is, uh, uh, I guess, I suppose speaks to it. But what, what to do in St. Lucie? Um, there's a movie theater. Nice. There's, a, there's a mini golf place. 
cool. We've uh, been there. It's been a lot of Mets players go to that uh, that mini golf place. We saw David Robertson last year carrying around his like his his baby child like in a little backpack yeah. while playing mini golf with the family. And Mark Hanna also said that was like the best burger in Port St. Lucie. I must have guessed that. What, what, when's the pod coming out this episode? Uh, I think tomorrow, Thursday. Yeah, tomorrow, okay, yeah. then I can tell you that tonight, Wednesday night, the Mets are having a team bonding thing at Pop Stroke. Nice. That uh, that 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 mini golf place. So the, the whole squad will be there. Uh, they were chattering about it on the way out today. Uh, or, <laughs> or organized, I should note, by the Nimos, Brandon and Chelsea, Ooh. who sort of took up the torch after Mark, Max Scherzer had done cool. something similar in previous years. So. Uh, mini golf's a thing in St. Lucie. Golfing more generally is a thing in St. Lucie. Uh, I will say, uh, what moved the needle a couple of years ago on the culinary scene was when they opened a Texas Roadhouse. That's nice. A, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's good that, rolls. That's what we're the rolls and the the butter there are amazing, and that's that's the standard we're setting in Port St. Lucie. <laughs> All right, Tim, I gotta ask you. Yes, because and I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but uh, if you if you had to pick someone who would win a fight, Mickey Calloway or Jason Vargas? Oh my God, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> All right, but, but but a serious question: like, how did you feel during that situation? Because like, that's got to be crazy to like have like yeah. a player and a coach want to come at you. It was it was really weird, and it was it was it was frustrating to an extent too, because I'm a journalist, and you learn in journalism school: don't become the story. And unfortunately, that day I did. Um, I I will say that I'm, I'm. It blew it. What happened afterward is pretty much what I expected. That it was a thing for a couple of days, and then it pretty much blew over. And that is what people who had been in similar situations told me at the time. And when they told me that, I thought, okay, I hope so. And then, and then they were pretty much right. Like, and it, I actually heard some great stories about. Um, about various players and various reporters who'd had such run-ins, but before the internet or before social media is what it is. And it was like stuff that never really became public. Um, uh, but of course, in this case did be turned into a, a, a whole thing. Um, you know, occasionally reporters and the people they cover, there are frustrations, especially when the team is doing poorly. Um, and what I've told various people, you know, PR people, athletes, whomever, um, that if somebody doesn't like a question that I ask or a story that I write, I'm always happy to talk it out. You know, I'm very comfortable with my level of professionalism and my thought process behind a story or a question or whatever. So, uh, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, things boil over um, and then they blow over. So and then and then uh, and then life goes on. <laughs> We, we know it blew over, but what was the vibe like at the next press conference, at the next media availability? And was, how long did it take to blow over? It was it, it was weird because that whole next day in Philly, like Mickey did a had to do a double press conference. Like he came back yeah. for a second one. And fortunately, Newsday sent an, an additional reporter to basically cover that story. And I just... I, all I had to do that day was write about the game. <laughs> nice, lucky. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will say uh, afterward, it was it was either that night after the game or the next night, Brody had a post-game media availability about I don't even remember what. And I didn't ask any questions for no particular reason other than I'm not sure I had any that particular occasion. 
But he came up to me after and was like, hey, like, are you all right? You didn't ask him any questions. I just want to make sure like you're getting in there if, if, if you want anything. Um, and I really appreciated that from him. It was really, really nice of him to say that and go out of his way afterward. Um, and I told him, yeah, I'll, don't worry. I'm coming with questions when I have questions. <laughs> it's really is, nice. that the, is that the craziest thing that's ever happened to you as a uh, journalist? Uh, I have to say yes, at least in like a negative way, because there's been some crazy cool things to have happen too. Because um, my job is awesome and I love my job. Um, but yeah, that's the craziest thing on the on the bad side, and hopefully it stays that way forever. <laughs> <laughs> Two questions that we do like to ask, like any journalists, reporters, announcers that come on. You did just mention cool things, but you didn't say any of them. So you got to tell, tell us the coolest things ever happened to you on the job. Sure. And two. What's the weirdest job you've ever had covering sports or just making sure you're able to cover sports? The weirdest, what was the second one? The weirdest job you ever had in your way up. Oh, okay. So the coolest thing to happen to me probably was when Max Scherzer agreed to watch a game with me. I had pitched him on it when he was suspended. I said, let's watch a game together. I'll write about it through the eyes of Max Scherzer, a game, whatever. And he was iffy on it. And it sounds like a maybe. So I said, I'll come back in a couple of days and ask you, you, you think about it. And then it was a Sunday in San Francisco. And he said, Hey, let's do it. And I was like, not ready to do it. that." <laughs> but it was, it was now or never. So I said, it's now. And we watched the game together. And that was really cool. Cause you never get to watch a game with an athlete. Never mind a live regular season, real game that counts with a hall of famer. So that was, that was awesome. That was a really great experience. Um, and then the craziest job I had on my way up or the weirdest job, it wasn't a crazy job, but the craziest thing I did was up and move to Florida, a state to which I had never been uh, for a job, which was uh, my friends still joke about that time. I told them I was moving to Miami because they thought I was absolutely joking because I am not a Miami person in any way. Um, but I was I was living in Boston after college and doing the freelance thing, piecing it together with a few outlets, right, like making OK money but would really rather have health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the Sun Sentinel, which is based right outside Miami, had a Marlins opening and they hired me. And I, like I said, I'd never been to Florida before the job interview. So I, there, I come down here and there are palm trees and lizards walking around on the sidewalk, which was crazy to me. Now, now I'm used to it, but seeing it for the first time, I, I straight up asked one of the editors if that was normal. And they laughed at me, and but they still hired me, so that was good. Um, so I don't know how many weird jobs I've had in journalism, but or maybe like the weirdest like team or sport you've had to cover. Um, you know, one summer when I was interning at my local paper in Danbury, Connecticut, the News Times, um, I was interning and covering a variety of random things, and one of the things was like U ten travel baseball. Nice. Which nice. Was, and it was just like when a regional team was advancing pretty far, like they assigned me to cover the games. And I thought these kids are straight up kids. What are you, <laughs> what are you how, how am I supposed to write this game? Um, and I just remember, you know, they're, they're 10 years old. They're not that, even when they're the best, they're not that good. Um, and I just, I just remember <laughs> an awkward kid sort of falling over and making a catch in right field in a big moment. And he was like, not very good, but, and I, and I wrote it like it was the major leagues. <laughs> it, it, it just like doing it up, 
not lying. I didn't exaggerate any. I didn't. I didn't make up any details about it. But it was a big moment. And just I was covering a game. And even though they were really young kids, I just wrote it like I was covering a game. And uh, you know, I like to think that no matter what sport or what level you're covering, somebody's going to be reading it, even if it's the kids in ten years when they're looking at the clips, or the parents the next morning in the paper. And you want to treat that sport and that level the same way you want to treat a major league game or the World Series or whatever. Um, so that's the way I approached that. It was it oh, was totally. a weird assignment, but that's the way I approached it. Yeah, as as uh, someone whose dad has cut out every single time his name has ever been in the paper from eight year old baseball till you know graduating high school, uh, the, those people definitely appreciated probably how you wrote up that catch that you just described as maybe a little clumsy, but yes. you wrote it like it was the greatest play of all time. Right. But uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. We yeah. definitely want to have you on again during the season because. Boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. We love to hear what uh, insight you have for us with the Mets and everything going on there. Uh, let everybody know where they can follow you, what you got going on, and then we'll wrap it up here. Two places. The first one is Newsday.com slash Mets because Newsday pays me. So shout out to them. Subscribe. It's very inexpensive. And then on Twitter, I'm at Tim B. Healy, H-E-A-L-E-Y. And uh like to see people on there. So those are the two places. Awesome. Tim, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you guys for listening and watching, and we will catch you on the next episode of the Mets the Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys.